Welcome to Good God, Conversations That Matter About Faith and Public Life. I'm your host, George Mason, and I'm delighted to welcome to the program today President Michael Sorrell, Paul Quinn College in Dallas, Texas. And uh, Michael, it's so good to have you with us. Oh, it's great to be here. It's always a pleasure to be in your company. Thank you very much. All right, now we're going to give you the full um, the full introduction here. You uh, were voted by Fortune Magazine in 2018, one of the world's greatest leaders. That's a pretty big honor. Oh, my goodness. Yes, yeah. I tell you, it, uh, it is not translated into getting me out of any chores around the house. Uh, All right. <laughs> it is, All right. It's nice. Very, very good. All right. Well, Paul Quinn College, let's just give a little uh, quick background. Uh, Paul Quinn College is a, a school that started um, during the period of Reconstruction, I guess, uh, in Austin, Texas. The uh, ministers of the African Methodist Episcopal denomination, uh, and they started that school. It is a historically black uh, college and university in that uh, uh, genre, uh, and moved to Dallas what year? 1990. 1990, succeeding Bishop College in the current location. That's exactly right. Yeah. So you have been president there since when? Uh, 2007. So it's been 13 years. Fantastic. And boy, in those 13 years, have there ever been changes? <laughs> My goodness. Uh, well, uh, Paul Quinn has become a real model in so many ways and a great gift to Dallas, uh, maybe especially especially to South Dallas, as not just a place to educate students, but as an engine of revitalization for the entire community. So first of all, let me just say thank you for your leadership and congratulations on uh, all you've accomplished. Thank you very much. It really, you know, I'm just, I'm very, very fortunate to be able to do something I love on behalf of people that I love. So I do not take it for granted one second of a day. Not taking anything for granted is actually very much a theme we're all dealing with right now, isn't it? <laughs> this this COVID-19 uh, period of shelter in place and now the state opening up, the county trying not to open up as much, all those sorts of things. This has a tremendous uh, impact on colleges and universities. And last Friday, uh, the Atlantic Magazine published a column uh, by you uh, called, uh, it's titled, Colleges Are Deluding Themselves. That was the headline. And uh, tell us the essence of that op-ed. I have read it several times and uh, appreciate your perspective, but I think it's an important one uh, for a wider audience to get. Sure, sure. Well, first of all, let me thank you for reading it. Um, you know, <laughs> I don't take that for granted when you write things that someone will actually read them. Uh, but it, you know, the, the real point of it is that we as leaders have a moral obligation to the folks who are following us, who we are stewards of. And that starts at taking care of them, right? Their health and their safety. And in the higher education space, and I would argue in the larger space, people are rushing back to reopen, um, are rushing back to claim normal, simply because they are tired of the sacrifices that are being mandated upon them. And, you know, to the point where you see individuals 
really making decisions that are not supported on the basis of facts or science. And, you know, the article, I really just sort of challenge people and say, listen, first of all, excuse me, you have to tell people the truth. You have to say to them, if there's no vaccine and there's no widespread testing, our ability to keep you safe is limited. And there's this great study, excuse me, there's this great study by Cornell University, um, these, these researchers there, that highlights the issue. They, they basically say that on a college campus, it is impossible to prevent the spread of an epidemic because of the way they're constructed. So you're only two to three students away from being in touch with everyone. So now when you think about that, right, like this is a disease that is spread through close human contact. The virus is capable of living outside of a human host for a period of time on metal, on rubber. <laughs> it is it needs certain things that a college campus has an abundance of right, to right. spread. So as you know, my peers have rushed back and said, we're definitely going to reopen. And what they're not saying to people is the reason we're doing this is financial because we are afraid that we cannot afford to remain closed. And listen, I get it. I do. I mean, I'm president of an institution that is not a wealthy institution. Um, but what we have always tried to do is to honor the faith that people have brought to us, right? We have worked very, very hard to fight the fights that people need fighting, to be frank with them, even to the point, I mean, we practice something, you know, we say, look, we choose the harder right over the easier wrong without apparent regard to self-interest. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is that test. Nice so that's what I wrote yeah. about. Um, yeah. And it was pretty interesting to see the response that it's got. Yeah, yeah, okay. So we'll get to the response in just a minute because, uh, so you, you say in the article that the reason these schools are caving in uh, boils down to fear and acquiescence, uh, th those two things. So fear of financial ruin, I suppose, and acquiescence also, to just the desire of people to go back to a normal before they really should do so, right? Yes. Uh, and, and so you're a faith-based institution and you're, you're operating here out of values that are human before uh, they are economic. Okay, Absolutely. so we, we're human beings before we're human doings, things of that nature. So these are the, the kinds of things that are informing you. And yet what we've seen just this week is another faith-based institution, Notre Dame University, announce that they are going back to campus um, pretty much business as usual, August the 10th, I believe. Uh, now they're gonna finish their semester at, at Thanksgiving so that they don't have students going back and forth. But nonetheless, uh, there's a major institution, a faith-based institution, uh, coming back into business, and other schools are doing the same, uh, and yet, um, you have uh, a conviction that you need to hold off until the science and the medicine catches up to uh, to to where we need to be. Yeah. Uh, what sort of reaction have you had from 
some of these schools that are making a different decision to the article you wrote? Sure. Well, I mean, you know, I'm not going to be invited to give the commencement address at Notre Dame anytime soon, right? (laughs) (laughs) There will be no honorary degree for me from there, okay? But um, listen, I, uh, I understand Catholic culture. Um, my father was Catholic. I went to Catholic schools from fifth through 12th grade. Right? I, I am a proud graduate of a Jesuit high school. And I understand some things about the Catholic faith, right, that have never been, that I've always had reason to question a little bit. Right? I, I am not Catholic, all right? But there's an element of taking things um, that the church puts forward with a sort of trust. Um, I, I remember very clearly being in fifth or sixth grade, I guess it was fifth grade. And, you know, we were talking about the Pope being infallible. And, you know, my question was, well, but the Pope was born, right? The Pope has a mother and father, right? How is the Pope infallible? And I'm not infallible, right? Like, right. I mean, it, which, you know, I'm not making fun of that. My point is there's just certain things that, you know, and sure. every, every religion has that, right? Like there's certain things we take on faith. Um, but here's the thing. My question that I would ask the folks at Notre Dame that they would have to answer in the quiet of their own time is if football was played in the spring, would they be rushing back to school? Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. There we go. And there we go. Let us, let us understand Notre Dame football, Notre Dame football is sacred. Yeah. Right? The idea right. to people that you would forego that revenue stream, that mm-hmm. you would forego that significant aspect of your culture. Right. The question, the second question I would ask is how exactly are we going to play football given the nature of this virus? How exactly are you going to maintain crowds? How, how exactly, and, and by the way, I give no one a pat on the back for canceling Christmas, I mean, classes at Thanksgiving. We stopped holding classes after Thanksgiving years ago. It wasn't because (laughs) of the virus. It was because students couldn't afford to travel back and forth. And we didn't want to make people feel as exiles on their college campus. And so um, I I just think that, you know, we justify things that... Um, we, we, let me put it differently. We use facts as we like to interpret them to justify the decisions that are important to us to make. Right. Right. Well, your own faith, not a Catholic faith, but nonetheless, a a faith that, um, uh, that is personal and practiced and real, uh, leads you to different conclusions in, in leadership. Uh, but those conclusions uh, are are not just about valuing students generally. They're also about how you how you build them into the institution. So the motto of your school is "We over me," for right. instance, right? Sure. So so at the at the very beginning of this, when you just begin to scratch the surface of Paul Quinn, what you find is something countercultural. That is, you know, in a culture that values radical individualism. Uh, you are saying the community comes first. Yes. Uh, that uh, in, 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 a, in, a, in a place that values personal achievement, what you're saying is loving and caring for your neighbor 
is the, the first line of, of business for the people that come to this school. So how do you, uh, how do you talk to prospective students and their families about what role faith plays in the values and the uh, ethos of your school versus others? Sure. Well, what's interesting to, to us is that we don't ever sell people on Christianity, right? right? We sell people on this idea that we have a responsibility to each other. <clears throat> that, you know, we over me is our ethos. We have the four L's of Quinite leadership. Lead places better than you found them. Live a life that matters. Lead from wherever you are. Love something greater than yourself. Now, look, you don't have to have sat in the church pews on 10 years of Sundays to understand that we are a deeply faith-based institution, right? Right, right. That, like, we... we we believe these things. And what we tell families is this might not be for you. Okay. If you are, if you are not open to the possibility that service and loving each other and putting each other to the forefront, that that's uncomfortable for you. If you can't do that, that's okay. There are all these other schools for you to attend. Okay. But for us, we are laser focused on teaching people the value of doing for others, the value of, of just making a sacrifice. And what I like to point out to people who are wedded to their own selfishness and to their own, you know, self-aggrandizement is that, you know, I tell them, it's like, look, I am, if not the most decorated college president in the country, I'm certainly one of the top 10. Okay, and all of those individual accolades came from putting other people first. There was <laughs> nothing that I've done that's right, right. me, 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 I, I, I. This right. whole thing, like, I don't even, like, you know, my wife teases me because she said, if you ever want to see my husband become tongue-tied, make him talk about himself. <laughs> she said, yeah. it's, it's, it's almost uncomfortable to watch. <laughs> sure. Yeah, very good. Well, you've been able to make this decision uh, about how you're going to proceed with campus life and uh, remaining online, um, partly because you've all already prepared for an eventuality like this. So the, 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 the argument you make in, in your uh, op-ed piece is that it's time for us to use this to rethink the entire higher educational model, right? Yeah. And and you have a, uh, you are one of uh, nine U.S. work colleges, right? Uh, that changes the understanding of how students finance an education. So let's talk a little bit about what a work college is. Uh, the only black, historically black college that qualifies in this category and, and at the end of this process, uh, your goal is that no student have more than $10,000 worth of debt with a degree in hand. Yes. Yes. So we, um, we think that higher education needs a reboot. Okay. And it needs a reboot because effectively we are preparing students for a society that no longer exists. And 
that that to us is problematic. We, in all fairness, we don't think any problem is ever permanently solved, right? We think because of the pace of change, the way that things are evolving, you have to accept the fact that you're going to do the best you can do for today. Right. But let's equip you with the tools for you to be able to continue to thrive in a different environment. So first thing we did was we said, well, we were going to build a school from scratch. What do we think would be important? And we thought experiential learning is important. Giving people an opportunity to develop a skill set that they would not normally get. We said, well, what's also important? Well, holding down the cost of attendance is really, really important. And so we need to be able to give people more for less. It's all right. How do we do that? Well, we're going to have to incorporate students into the day-to-day activities of the institution. All right. The work college allows us to do that. Now we're the, we created a brand new model of the work college with the urban work college where students work off campus as well, because, you know, in America, something like 75% of our students work more than 20 hours per week. And most of that work occurs off campus. So instead of stressing people out, we said, well, what if we bring all of the work piece of this in-house and we find the jobs for the students, help manage the schedule and all of that so people have the ability to, to reclaim a little bit of their lives back. Um, we cut tuition and fees by $10,000 so that we could try and help people you know, not go into lifelong debt because 80 to 85% of our students are Pell Grant eligible. So they were borrowing that money, okay? Or their parents were borrowing the money or their grandparents were borrowing the money. So you were looking at generations of families going into debt in the pursuit of this college education. So we said, all right, we cut the price. We alleviate the need for that to happen. But what if we gave people more value for their educational dollar? And so what we do now is you come to Paul Quinn and it's, we cut tuition fees again this year down to 12,000 um, in anticipation that we're probably gonna have to go to school online, right? And it didn't make sense charging people the same thing that we would have charged them if they were on campus. So and you refunded money as well this semester. Absolutely, we did, you know? Um, and because that's the right thing to do. You know, now there's some people like, well, it would have been nice if you'd just given us the cash. And we're like, <laughs> well, I hear you, but if you're gonna come back to school, how about we just give you a scholarship? We gave the senior, graduating seniors back money, but we said, look, take the scholarship, right? Because otherwise you were gonna have to borrow this money so right. why don't we keep you from having to do that? Um, but you get your subject matter education at Paul Quinn, you get what you major in, then you get your experiential learning. If you're there for four years, you get four years of experiential learning through the work program. And starting in the fall, every year, you pick up a credential, like a, a digital credential that you can use that allows you to be competitive in the workplace. You can start with a Microsoft Office certificate you can learn how to code um you know and everything in between Fantastic. so that that way if you look up and you say you know what because i was a government major mm-hmm. right um if i decided well i you know i don't want to be a government major i don't want to do what government majors do i don't want to practice law uh then i did internships but many of my internships were in you know business were uh sales and trade or investment banking stuff. So, well i don't want to do that so 
I would have the credentials and the certificates to come along to give me another option, which we think is important. Fantastic. All right. Now you mentioned seniors. So Friday, you published this piece in the Atlantic. Saturday. Now Saturday was a day. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about Saturday. I want to know how it all came to be. I want to know what your role in what, cause you had a role in this, you had a part. And what we're talking about is, uh, this, uh, HBCU commencement that was a nationwide commencement service essentially. And president Barack Obama, I love calling him president still. I'm sorry. I can't help myself. I'm with there's, you. A certain, there's a certain whim, whimsical longing, uh, that, that Saturday really represented to me. I'm sorry. I shouldn't be political here, but it you're, is you're not it. by yourself. Okay. okay. <laughs> anyway. So, you know, here I mean, I'm imagining Paul Quinn college and commencement ceremony being one of the really big events in your annual calendar, probably because uh, I'm going to guess that many of your students are first generation graduates from college. And so this is a huge achievement. This is not necessarily expected. They don't, they're going to be denied this opportunity. So this is true for all the historically black colleges and universities. Uh, who decide to get together and have one big commencement. So how did all that happen? So it's just so funny. Um, you know, I was literally sitting at the desk that I'm sitting at right now talking to you. And it was a Saturday morning. And I, you know, the Dallas Morning News, Sharon Grigsby had written this great mm -hmm. article about, you know, the school and about what we were, you know, having to deal with having to send the students home and the pain of students missing commencement. And one of my seniors, Jennifer Fletcher, um, had talked about how brokenhearted she was. And then we had another student um, who effectively my wife and I have adopted and she was talking about how devastated she was. And, you know, originally I was sort of like, listen, guys, you're still getting your degree. You're going to get an opportunity to walk. It'll just be next year. And none of that was making them feel any better. Okay. You know, I, I needed, I could have used some coaching on my delivery, I guess, on that one. And so I'm sitting here at, it was literally, it was like 9, 9 a.m. on a Saturday morning, and I'm sitting here at my desk. And I'm just looking out the window, you know, I'm doing now. And it occurred to me, I was like, you know what? We can't be the only school where students are feeling this way. And I said, what if we have a national commencement celebration for all the HBCUs and we give everyone a chance to have a community experience? And I, you know, I called my wife into the room. I said, hey, I've got this idea. And, you know, she's looking at me and she says, huh. She said, well, well how'd you come up with it? I was like, I don't know. I was like, I literally just, like, I came up with it. And she's like, is this how you, I was like, yeah, I'm telling you. Like, it just, <laughs> right? It's so a I, God thing. Yeah. It, it, it is clearly a God thing, right? Like, I, I tell people all the time, look, we are so far past my natural abilities at this point. <laughs> okay. Right? So um, I call up some friends of mine and I say, hey, I have this idea. What do you think? Would you be supportive of it? So 
One of them was the son deducted, who's from the DFW area. She's the president of J.P. Morgan Chase's Consumer Banking Division. And I call a good friend of mine, Oris Stewart, who's part of the executive team at the National Basketball Association. I call some other HBCU sector leaders. And everyone's like, this is a cool idea. And, you know, once J.P. Morgan Chase and once the NBA signed on to it, we just took off. And in five or six weeks, we put all of that together and had over, we had 78 institutions participate, over 27,000 graduates, and about a million and a half people have watched the, the ceremony. It, I, like, it, I mean, it <laughs> exceeded my wildest dreams. Right, right. It was just, I was incredibly humbled by it. And, and uh, President Obama, how, how did he come about uh, as being a part of that? You know, I will tell you, I always sort of hoped that we could get him. Yeah. That, like when I thought about, since, you know, who would be the perfect speaker for this moment? Right. You know, he was the perfect speaker for that moment. And so we had several entrees to him. Um, You know, I have some relationships through Ron Kirk and some others, um, but what got us was there was a gentleman at J.P. Morgan Chase who was good friends with their comms person, the Obama's communications person. And he pitched it to the comms person who took it to the president and the president said yes. And, you know, I didn't know whether we were going to get, you know, sort of like that two minute, hey, great job, you all the fun. Yeah. No, he gave a commencement address. Right, right. And I was sitting there just like wow right <laughs> it was incredible yeah it, it even more so than the high school uh, one that he did right you know so uh, which he did that evening as well uh which was beautiful but uh well that's fantastic well uh we really uh, we were really proud of you and of that effort and we always are uh michael here in dallas those of us who are awake enough to know what's happening in the whole city uh, know what an influence you are and what uh, a, a force for good. And, and we're just um, uh, grateful and in your corner. And I want to talk a little more about all of this in the second episode, but thank you for uh, your time with us on Good God. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for continuing to tune into Good God. We've enjoyed uh, having these episodes produced, over a hundred of them now, uh, usually in a studio, but now we're doing so through computer technology in this time of social isolation. We're all trying to be careful with one another, but we also want to be careful to cultivate our spirit during this time, not to be discouraged, not to be despairing, but to be encouraged and to uh, encourage one another. So thank you for tuning in. We hope you appreciate these as much as we enjoy being able to offer them to you as a gift. God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White, social media coordination by Cameron Vickery. Good God, Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2020 by Faith Commons.